Our text is the entirety of Hebrews chapter 7, so if you are able, I will ask you to stand as we read that. Uh, This is a long text and a wonderful text. Uh, I would ask that you you, uh, follow along with me. There are two ways to do that on page 1004 of your pew Bibles or the Bibles that you've brought. Um, Brandon, by the way, loves to see open Bibles when he's up here, so that's a little hint. And you may also follow along in the screen behind me. Okay. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, revealed tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. 
The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you, Mark, and thank you for that admonition to keep our Bibles open. I, I will not lie, I do love to see that because the goal of this time is not to hear from me, but to hear from the Lord. And the, the one sure way to guarantee we're hearing from God today is that your Bible is open in front of you. And so let's pray as we look at, at Hebrews chapter 7. Gracious Father, what a great word you are giving us today a deep and mysterious word even, uh, but Lord, one that casts our eyes to your Son, and it's Him we want to see. So would you give us eyes to see Him and ears to hear Him and hearts changed by the gospel of His grace? We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as uh, C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, comes to its climax, the white witch thinks that she has finally found the chink in Aslan's armor. If you're familiar with the story, you'll remember that the white witch is the villain who has enslaved all of Narnia under her spell, making it always winter and never Christmas, which is basically New England for the last three months. But Aslan is the hero, right? Aslan the lion. He's the hero, and he's on the move, and his return to Narnia has already begun to break that witch's spell. But just as it looks, like Aslan is winning, and the white witch is losing her grip, she plays her most valuable card. She exposes the fatal flaw in Aslan's plan the fact that there has been a traitor in his midst. Edmund, one of the four children who found their way into Narnia through the wardrobe. And the witch dares to remind Aslan and his followers, have you forgotten the deep magic? You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey. And for every treachery, I have a right to a kill. And so, continued the witch, that human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. Unless I have blood, as the law says, all Narnia will be overturned 
and perish in fire and water. She found the fatal flaw in Aslan's rescue plan, and she sought now to exploit it. And again, if you know the story, uh, you know that Aslan brokers a secret deal with the witch. He offers himself in place of the boy Edmund as a willing substitute. But even in that deal, the witch sees her victory. As she prepares to plunge her knife into Aslan on the stone table, she cries out, And now who has won? Fool, did you think that by all of this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever, you have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. And Aslan does. He dies. Slain by the witch. And all hope seems lost. And as those who loved him weep and, and grieve and, and try to care for him, there is all of a sudden behind them this loud crack. And, and they turn and they see the stone table split in two And then they see Aslan, the lion, alive and larger than they've ever seen him before. And so Susan, one of the children, asks, but what does it all mean? It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. As we come to Hebrews chapter 7 this morning, the church in this letter, finds itself in a similar climactic moment. We've seen throughout the book that there have been those who have been persecuting this church and and pressuring them to let go of the gospel and go back to the old covenant, go back to Judaism as though the Christ hadn't come, as though Jesus wasn't the Messiah. And now... It's as though their persecutors finally found the fatal flaw in the church's gospel. You say that Jesus is both king and priest. But according to the law, you know that the king must come from the tribe of Judah and the priest must come from the tribe of Levi. It's as if they're they're going back to the deep magic. They're going back to the law. And on the basis of that law, they have a point. They are absolutely right. That the priest must come from Levi. That's what the law says. And therefore, 
Jesus, who's not from the tribe of Levi, he's, he's from the tribe of Judah. He's therefore qualified to be king, but he is not qualified to be priest. And if he's not priest, he's not Messiah, and your gospel is broken. But what the author of Hebrews has been hinting at for several chapters now, and it now begins to unfold in its full glory, is that the, those who are persecuting the church are not looking back far enough. There is a deeper magic from before the dawn of time, if you will, a priesthood that's rooted in something far more ancient and abiding than the Levitical priesthood, one that's not based on the law, on family line or genealogy, nor stunted by sin or subject to death. Rather, it's anchored in the ancient order of Melchizedek, a man who was both king and priest at the same time. And because Jesus' priesthood comes from him and not from Aaron, he alone is qualified to complete God's work of salvation. Our gospel is not busted. Our gospel is our only hope. And that's the point that he wants to make in this chapter this morning. It's a point he wanted to get into back in chapter 5, if you'll remember. He introduced Melchizedek, and then he was all ready to start explaining what he meant, and then he had to stop because he didn't think they were ready for that. He needed to deal with some spiritual laziness first. But now he's here. He is He's ready to go, and he makes his case in two parts. In verses 1 through 10, he rehearses the greatness of Melchizedek the man. He takes us back into his story in the Old Testament. And then, in verses 11 to 28, he explains the greatness of the order of Melchizedek, this priestly order that comes from that great man, and how through it, Jesus is not only our king, but he is also our perfect king priest, and the only one who's able and qualified to bring us all the way home, to complete God's work of salvation in his people. And so we'll start with his story in verses 1 through 10. Verse 1, the author brings us back to Genesis 14, uh, the story of Abraham and what's known as the slaughter of the kings. So if you have time this afternoon and and you want to refresh yourself a little bit, go to Genesis 14. You'll read the story of about how when there were four kings who teamed up together to fight against five kings and there was this great war and they ended up taking and, and capturing the people of Sodom. And at that time, Abraham's nephew Lot was living in Sodom with his family. This is before God turned the place to toast. And so Abraham uh, hears that his nephew has been captured and he rouses up his men and they go after them and they, they defeat the kings. They rescue Lot and his family and the people of Sodom and they bring them all back. And then after that, we read this, Genesis 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He shows up out of nowhere, 
blesses Abraham, receives this offering of a tenth from Abraham, and then he's gone. And that's the last you read of Melchizedek. He's gone. We don't meet him again in the rest of the book of Genesis or any other book in the Old Testament, not till you get to Psalm 110 and the promise of another priest to arise in his likeness. It's just this mysterious character. So who is Melchizedek? Why is he so great? And what does that have to do with Jesus? Well, if we go back to Hebrews 7, those are the questions he wants to answer. Hebrews 7, the middle of verse 2, he starts with the significance of his name. He is, first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So this Melchizedek is a king, both by his name and his office, the king of Salem, which most people think is probably a reference to Jerusalem. But this king is at the very same time a priest, priest of God Most High, which is a reference to the one true God. He's the possessor of heaven and earth. And, and, and his priesthood is not based on his family genealogy, you know, what family he comes from, as with Levi and Aaron, nor does it need to be based on a family genealogy so that it can be passed down because his priesthood actually endures forever. It doesn't need to be passed down. Verse 3, he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, that verse has caused all sorts of curious conversation over the years. Uh, is he saying here that, that this Melchizedek is actually a kind of pre-incarnate son of God, a pre-incarnate Christ, like that, that Jesus showed up then in kind of a temporary way and then later came again? Or is he saying that this is a mere mortal whose story sets a pattern for the priesthood of Christ? I have no idea which of those two are true. What is clear is that there's something unique and mysterious about this Melchizedek, something great, a deeper magic, to use Lewis's term, that predates the law and provides a pattern for Christ to fulfill. And in verses 4 through 10, the author elaborates on that greatness, specifically by comparing Melchizedek to Levi, on whom Israel's covenant priesthood was based, and then showing how Melchizedek at every turn is better. So first in verse 5, while both priests receive a tithe from others, an offering of a tenth of, of someone's possessions, it, you, the Old Testament, Israel would give a tenth to the Lord, and they'd give that to him through the priest. And so both priests are, are used to receiving a tithe, Right? But the Levites received a tithe from their brothers, from fellow descendants of Abraham, not because they were above their brothers, but because the law commanded them to give that tithe. But Melchizedek has a superior basis for receiving a tithe. Because Abraham gave him a tithe, not because he was commanded to, not because there was some law, but because Melchizedek was above Abraham and was worthy of that offering. 
as he says in uh, verses 6 to 7. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Abraham. Recognize what he's saying here. Abraham, the one on whom all of God's promises rest, through whom they're all filtered, is inferior here to Melchizedek, the superior. So he has a, a better basis, a, more, a greater worthiness for receiving his offerings than the Levitical priest. Second, in verse 8, his superiority is also reflected in his enduring life. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, people who die. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. And again, this, there's this mysterious immortal quality to Melchizedek, whether, you know, again, as a, as a pre-incarnate Christ or as a pattern for Christ. And then third, verses 9 to 10, he makes a rather uh, creative but profound point that Melchizedek's superiority over Levi is implicit in the fact that, that when Abraham gave Melchizedek a tithe, that, that Le, the Levites were implicitly also giving him a tithe because they were still in Abraham's loins, as he puts it. So that too makes Melchizedek greater, that Levi actually tithed to, them, to him. That's his point. So he leaves no doubt as to the superiority of Melchizedek over that of Aaron and the Levitical priests. But this isn't just about winning an argument. Nor is it a kind of petty, you know, my dad can beat up your dad kind of dispute between who, which priesthood is better. Understanding and acknowledging the true and greater priest is a matter of infinite importance and eternal salvation. Because it, think about what a priest's job is. You know, it's, it's to mediate a relationship between a holy God and a sinful people. As the author uh, explained back in chapter 5, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what the Levites were set apart to do, to bring offerings to God on behalf of the people that their sins might be atoned for, that those people might be therefore acceptable to God and able to have a relationship with the Holy God even though they fall far short of His holiness and His glory. So, it's the priest who brokers that relationship with God, who advocates for the people, who mediates, who intercedes for them in their needs and their sins. And so, if you go to or depend on the wrong priest, you're not just losing an argument. You're putting yourself at risk of missing out on God and His eternal salvation. This matters infinitely which priest we depend on. And it matters not just for the early church and their temptation to look back to the Levitical priesthood. It matters for us Today, in our temptation to look sideways to all sorts of other kinds of priests, people, objects, things that we might treat as that which brokers our relationship with God. 
I mean, there are religious priests who, who claim a special access to God on earth that they can offer you if you come through them. Even within some Christian traditions where you're required to go through them and their rituals in order to get to God. Or there are pop culture priests like Oprah who offers a a generic spirituality and a a self-driven moralism that you can kind of adjust and suit to fit to however you like the taste and and have this, this great access to God through that. Or there are prosperity gospel priests who peddle all of the promises of heaven and all of the riches of heaven right here, right now on earth, if you will just go through them, make your donation, plant your seed, and unlock heaven's floodgates. It is so easy to look for our advocacy everywhere else except up to heaven where Jesus, our great high priest, sits having finished the work for us and given us eternal access to God. Sitting as the final and great high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's who he is. And that's where he sits. The perfection of the priestly office and the only one qualified to be able to complete God's work of salvation in us. And that's what the author now focuses on as he moves on from the greatness of Melchizedek the man to the greatness of the priestly order that arises from this ancient man. Verses 11 to 28. This order that Jesus takes up and fulfills. And as you come to verse 11 now the author brings us back to another Old Testament text, this time to Psalm 110, which is the only other place in the Old Testament where Melchizedek is mentioned. And this psalm has already been quoted several times in the book of Hebrews. We've seen it in chapter 1 where he referred to this psalm to talk about Jesus' royal identity. He's a king. And we've seen it in chapters 5 and 6 where he's talked about Jesus's priestly identity. And it's this psalm that ties Jesus to the deeper magic from before the dawn of time with God's promise to raise up a priest from a different order than Aaron or Levi. Psalm 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Remember, he's talking to David's son, to a king, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The very law that the persecutors thought they could use to trap the church and expose their gospel has given way to a new and more perfect kind of priest. And this was always the design. This was always the goal. Verse 11 Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? I mean, why would God have made a promise in Psalm 110 if the Levitical priesthood was capable of of producing a perfect priest? God wouldn't have promised that, but the Levitical priesthood wasn't 
capable. And so, and, and moreover, that imperfect law was therefore subject, subject to change when that perfect priest finally arrives. Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. Because the law could not contain what God was doing through His Son. It doesn't have a category for a king from Judah who's also a priest. The law didn't have a category for that. For the, for the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, not Levi, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Jesus breaks the categories of the law which doesn't mean that the gospel is therefore wrong, as the accusers would say. It means that you're not looking far enough back. And when you look far enough back, beyond the law, you see the superiority of Christ, who has arisen as a priest in the likeness of Melchizedek. A priest whose office is not based on the law or on family descent, but as he puts it in verse 16, on the power of an indestructible life. That's the basis of his priesthood. He doesn't need to, to show some genealogy. He's risen and lives forever. Which doesn't mean that he never died. But as one author explains, it means that our priest died a death that could not hold him. A death that was followed by resurrection. Therefore, God is able to do through this priesthood what the law could never do. He's able to finish the job. To bring about perfection. The completion of his saving work, which means he's introduced a better hope. There was great hope through the Levitical priesthood. There was hope to be able to know God truly, but it was an incomplete hope. In Jesus, we now have a better hope, one that's able to bring us all the way home. A better hope through which we draw near to God. When you look far enough back, you see that the priesthood of Christ contains a deeper certainty to God's promises as well. Verses 20 to 22. Jesus' priesthood is sealed with an oath. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. If you wanted to kind of really convince somebody of the trustworthiness of your words, that you were going to keep your promise, you would seal it with an oath. You'd give a guarantee, right? Well, God does that with the priesthood of Christ. He seals it with an oath, which is something he did not do with the Levitical priests. That makes Jesus' office even more secure, more trustworthy, such that we have greater confidence in Him than we could ever have had in the ancient Levitical order or any modern knockoff today. Because the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. Jesus is a priest forever. And that makes Him the guarantor of a better covenant. And when you look far enough back, you see the superiority of Christ's priesthood 
as the only one able to complete God's work of salvation. And that's kind of the climax of our passage in verses 23 to 28. This is where he's been moving, what he's been aiming to encourage and convince us of, to hope in Christ alone for the completion of our salvation, because there's no other priest qualified to fulfill it. When you compare the priesthood of Christ after the order of Melchizedek, when you compare that to the priesthood of the Levites, you see that the Levites were just, they were simply unfit and unable to finish the job. First, they too were sinners, just like the people that they served. And so when they offered sacrifices, they had to start by offering sacrifices for their own sin, because left to themselves, they weren't even worthy to do their own job. So they had to start there and then offer for the sins of the people. Second, the sacrifices that they offered were ultimately insufficient to deal with sin. We're going to see this a whole lot more clearly when we get to chapters 9 and 10. But in chapter 10, verse 4, we're told it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So their, their, their sacrifices were insufficient. And then third, because of their sin, these priests were also subject to death. They weren't around long enough to finish the job. Chapter 7, verse 23 says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. You had to have a pretty deep bench because sin brought death. Now compare all of that to Jesus. The former priests were prevented by death from continuing in office. But verse 24, Jesus holds his office permanently because he continues forever. He is our risen and eternal priest and king whose office is not subject to death, but it is secured by the power of an indestructible life. Unlike Israel's priests, Jesus never sinned. Verse 26, For indeed it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. What kind of high priest? Well, One who's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's the kind of high priest Jesus is. He's not subject to his own sin because he's perfect. And unlike Israel's priests, his sacrifice is sufficient to cover the sins of all people for all time. Verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He didn't offer up the blood of bulls and goats that was incapable of actually taking away sin. He offered up his own blood. He offered up himself once for all time and all people, and his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. It was enough such that no other sacrifice for sin need ever be offered again. There's nothing we need to add to it. 
to gain favor from God, and there's nothing any other priest can add to it either. We need only to trust Him. He's the priest that we need, but He's a priest that the law was never able to give us. And so verse 28, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And because Jesus is that perfect priest, holy, sinless, because Jesus alone lives forever as that perfect priest who's conquered death, that means Jesus alone is qualified to complete the work of God's salvation in us as the representative of a more ancient and abiding priesthood. And that's the hope, and really I think the main point of this chapter. Verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives. He's not subject to death. He doesn't have to start over. He always lives to make intercession, to intercede, to advocate, to to be our defense as our priest. That's what Jesus did when he walked on this earth, in his earthly ministry. He interceded for us as our priest. He, He prayed in John 17. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me that they may be one even as we are one. Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. He's advocating before His Father for us, pleading. It's what Jesus did from the cross. Praying for us as He hung there. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus being a priest in His greatest moment of pain. And it's what he's doing right now, in this very moment, in heaven, at the Father's side, on our behalf. He is interceding for us. His very presence in heaven is an act of intercession. You know, just the fact that he's standing there having completed the work of salvation is a reminder that those who trust in him are forgiven and accepted by God. We sang earlier, five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly speak for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. His wounds plead for us. But more than his presence and his wounds... Jesus prays for us. He continues to intercede for us as we face other trials or accusations. Romans 8.34 says, Christ is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now I know when I make a promise to my kids, they are constantly reminding me of the promise that I made. Now, 
Imagine if they were literally at my side for 24 hours, seven days a week for all eternity. Do you think I'd be allowed to forget that promise? No, no. And, and we have an advocate at the Father's side, eternally reminding him of his finished work and his promise to bring us home. Now, we should not think of Jesus' intercession as a kind of greedy kid begging a, a reluctant father. Jesus and the Father are one. His intercession is always and can only be at one with the good pleasure of the Father. And so as our intercessor, as one author writes of Jesus, his once completed self-offering is utterly acceptable and efficacious. His contact with the Father is immediate and unbroken. He's always at his side. His priestly ministry on his people's behalf is never-ending. He's always there advocating for us. And therefore, the salvation which he secures to them is absolute. Our living Savior is our perfect priest who is able and will be faithful to complete God's work of salvation in us. To bring us all the way home. Which means, again, we need no other priest. No other priest will do. No pop culture icons or prosperity gospel hucksters to, to make us closer to God. No religious priests either. And that's interesting. You know, there's a reason that among the offices of church leadership in the New Testament, there's no office of priest. Have you ever stopped to think about that? You have deacons who, who are set apart to serve. You have elders who are also called overseers, and they're set apart to shepherd. And that's where the role of pastor comes in. Pastor simply means shepherd, and so a pastor is just a, a vocational elder. But there is no office of priest in the New Testament church. Some church traditions will call their clergy priests and treat them like priests. That is a huge mistake that totally ignores or either mishandles the book of Hebrews, among other books. And, and the reason that there's no office of priest in church leadership according to the New Testament, it's not just because of the priesthood of all believers. That's a, a great reformational doctrine where all believers are invited into the presence of God. We can bring our prayers and our confessions and our concerns straight to the Father's throne. That is a true glorious thing, and we see that in 1 Peter 2. But 1 Peter 2 gets that from Exodus 19. Israel was described as a royal priesthood as well, and they had an office of priests. So it's not just because of the priesthood of all believers. The reason there's no office of priest in the church is because the office has been permanently and perfectly filled by Jesus himself. He needs no substitutes, and he's never going to vacate that office. And you don't need a priest to get to the priest. Jesus is the priest. He's the final, the great high priest who holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And as our priest, he invites us to draw near to God 
through him, not through anything else. He, he says that twice in our chapter. Verses 19 and 25, we are to draw near to God through him. And he says it beautifully in chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Our gospel is not broken. Our gospel is all we have. And it is enough. It's enough because Jesus is enough. He is our great high priest. Because he comes from a more ancient and abiding priesthood, he alone is qualified to complete God's work of salvation in us. And so may we hope in him alone. May he be all our hope such that if we find out, we won't, but if we we were to find out someday you know, that, that Jesus was a hoax, we'd be utterly lost because all our chips were in with him. That's the kind of hope he calls us to. And he is worthy. He is faithful. He will finish the job and bring us home. May we hope in him. Let's pray. Lord, would you fix our eyes and our hope on Christ alone? And would you give us confidence and joy that there's no more secure, no more sure, no deeper way or place to to fix our hope than on Christ himself? Thank you that you have not left us in our sin You've not left us wandering. You've not left us vulnerable in this broken world, but that you gave us a high priest who was able to finish the job. May our hearts rejoice in him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.